0: So there was this um, one very brief time of my life that lasted about five minutes where I got to drive a Rolls Royce with less than 10,000 miles on the odometer. And you would think this would be a, a high point of my life, but what it actually was, was it was probably the most terrifying park job I have ever had in my entire time as a driver. Cause I was working as a uh, nighttime valet parker completely under the table and we're going to be publishing this sermon so yeah there's a little tax issue there but it's I think past the statute of limitations and they were paying me to park their vehicles and to have them ready at the end of their meal and this was a really really nice restaurant out in the Hamptons so these people had cars like Rolls Royces and Formula One model cars with weird paddle shifting mechanisms. And I had no idea what I was doing driving half of these cars. And then all of a sudden, a Rolls Royce pulls out. And we didn't have like a parking lot that we parked in. There was a train station next to this restaurant. And so the way we would keep people from stealing our spots so that we'd have a spot for the next guy to pull up who wanted us to park for him, was that we'd park these cars exceptionally close together so that no person in their right mind would possibly park and steal our spots. So here I am with a Rolls Royce, trying to back this vehicle into this incredibly tiny parking spot, knowing that with all of the money I've made in the previous 16 or so hours doing valet parking, would be gone, and then some, and then some, if I were to get so much as a ding or a nick anywhere near this vehicle. I did manage to park it just fine. I didn't have to be the one to pull it out later, so I assume all is well and the person maybe gave us a nice tip, that would be great. But that moment of panic where I was realizing somebody has just handed me the keys to something that is worth more than the amount of money I have made in my entire life up to this point. (laughs) That's how I imagine a small bit of how mary and joseph must have felt when they got one day down the road and mary looked at joseph and said wait i thought you had the son of god god has entrusted us with his son and you left him in jerusalem and i can only imagine that the discussions perhaps the arguments that happened on the day travel turning around and going back to jerusalem hoping that they had not just lost the son of God. And then somehow they, they arrive in the temple and they, they get to the temple and they see that he's been sitting there and he's been talking with the scholars for three days. And not only has he been talking and they've been kind of tolerating him, but they're, they're all kind of gathered around him and they're impressed and astonished with how good this 12-year-old kid's answers are. I guess it only makes sense, though. He's interpreting his own book. And I, one of the first things I want to do when I, I get to see God face to face and when I see Christ face to face, once we get over the awe, and there, maybe that'll take a few years, I don't know, but one of the first things I would love to know when I can speak again is what in the world did you talk about for three days? Can I go back and watch that? You know, like, immediately after that, I'm going to ask him, what did you write on the ground when they brought you the woman who was caught in the act of adultery that made them all just walk away? You know, like, there, there are things that Jesus did that, that are kind of, like, hinted at throughout the Gospels. And I have no idea what he actually did, but I, I got to know. I, I've got to know. And I, I have no way of knowing, and so I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs the rest of my life. And every time we read these passages... I, I gotta know, and I, I can't, and maybe God is teaching me patience, I don't know. But it got me thinking, like, for, for Jesus to be able to give answers that were impressive and worth listening to, and to ask good questions, and to listen to the teachers. I don't know if you caught that, but in, in the passage it also says Jesus was listening to the scholars. And I, I kind of wonder, like, what were you thinking when you heard We Humans try and tell the Son of God what the Son of God's words meant. And it's almost kind of a a staple of preaching. If you go to a, a church long enough, you'll hear some sermon on where the pastor's talking about Jesus and the Pharisees going back and forth, or Jesus and the lawyers, or the teachers of the law, or the chief priests, or the Sanhedrin, or what have you. You know, all the religious people, right? Jesus and the religious people. And there's usually some friction going on. Whether it's because, I don't know, the disciples picked a couple heads of grain because they were hungry and it was the Sabbath. Or Jesus healed somebody and it was the Sabbath. Or Jesus claimed to have met Abraham. You know, there there are all these things that Jesus and the religious authorities had all of this this friction. And I kind of wonder... We get this dichotomy where we start talking about what does it mean to teach or to be righteous or to do the right thing? Or how do you relate with someone who you think is wrong as a Christian? When you meet somebody who maybe doesn't believe the way you do, or when you meet somebody who's from a different church and you have some theological things going on that don't quite line up. I think that for the things that truly mattered, Jesus could be abrasive. There was that one time that he made a a whip out of cords and drove everyone out of the temple area and overturned their tables and scattered their money and he drove them out. But then there's that other time that we talked about where we see him and they brought him a woman who is caught in the act of adultery They said, we we have evidence, she's guilty. And instead of going and making a whip or making an example of her, he he starts writing in the dirt. I just gotta know what he said. What did he he write? What, What is it that he put down in that dirt that made all of these religious leaders who thought they caught him in something, we've got him now, he has to enforce the law this time. And then he writes something and they wander off, the oldest one's first, until just he and the woman are left. And then he kind of straightens up and he looks at her and says, woman, where where'd they all go? Has no one condemned you? And she kind of looks around, she's like, well, I, I guess no one, Lord. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And before we hang our hat on the part of the story that ends, where he says, go and leave your life of sin, you start looking at the original manuscripts, that's not in some of the early manuscripts. In some early manuscripts of that story, Jesus writes in the dirt, all of the guys leave who are accusing her, he looks at her and says, "Is no one condemning you, and she says, no one, Lord. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you, and he stops talking.
1: Meaning that Jesus
0: refuses to condemn and doesn't immediately set expectations and requirements, and at least some of the manuscripts. Maybe that was a little too open-ended. Maybe the part about leaving a life of sin was added. Maybe it was forgotten, some of the manuscripts. We don't know. But when I see the way that Jesus interacts with people, whether it's as a 12-year-old talking and listening to people who are talking about the book that he and his father directed, whether it's asking good questions and leading and teaching people, or sometimes making a whip and driving people out of the temple area, it's this, it's this dichotomy. Is he the abrasive, absolutely not righteous anger Jesus? Or is he the infinitely patient and compassionate, neither do I condemn you, Jesus? What is it that makes those two things that are incompatible, you can't be both, how does he decide which is which? Which is correct when he's faced with somebody who has done wrong? The closest I can come to being able to predict what Jesus is about is that when he sees people who are taking advantage of the poor in the temple, people who are coming to worship, and he says, you are robbing them blind in a place of worship. Then he goes and gets a weapon. He gets a whip, and he drives people out. This cannot stand. I cannot allow you to take advantage of people in my father's house. And yet there are some transgressions that he seems willing to tolerate people who maybe in their wrongdoing or in their sin have hurt themselves. See, he tells the woman that neither do I condemn you, but then Zacchaeus, the one who has money and the one who has power, even though he's despised, he's an awful tax collector and everybody hates the guy. But he's got money and he's got power, and so Jesus says, I'm coming to your house. But then there's that expectation that Zacchaeus is going to go and pay everyone back four times what he's stolen from them. He has the power, he has the means, and so he's also got to make it right. That seems to be the distinguishing factor between righteously angry Jesus and compassionate and supportive and loving and caring Jesus. Is that if you have the means to make it right and you're instead using it to oppress others there's a lot of opposition, there's a lot of anger at what you are doing. You might be driven from the temple at that point. But if you're in a position where you know that you've done wrong and it hurts and you don't see a way out and you're not sure what to do next, I think that's when Jesus would rather come and encourage you, help you find the right thing to do, to forgive you and to find space to give you a little breathing room to be able to go and make that right. It seems like Jesus put himself squarely between the religious leaders who were accusing the woman and the woman. And then once he'd made that space and she had the opportunity, He said, this, this is why I'm not condemning you. I don't think the go and lead your life of sin was the I forgive you as long as you don't screw up again. Because this is the same Jesus that said, I'll forgive you and you should forgive 490 times, 70 times 7. I don't think his forgiveness is contingent on anything. And so when he says, neither do I condemn you. If he says, go and lead your life of sin, it's because sin is harmful. Sin is painful. It's destructive. The things that we we know are sinful, they they hurt people and they hurt us. And God doesn't want us to hurt others, and he doesn't want us to be hurt. Because you think about it, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If everyone did that, the world is a better place. It's not just a more righteous place. It's just not a more clean and tidy place. It's a better place place for everyone. Which is why the early church fathers thought that gossip was one of the worst things you could possibly do because it did violence against the body of Christ, his church. It was right up there with murder. And so there there are these opportunities that we have to hurt others, and if we take them, that's when we find the face of God turned against us. Because now we are choosing to do violence to our brothers and sisters. But even in that situation, even if you find yourself with God turning his face against you because of what you've chosen to do, daughters, to the moment you say, Lord, I repent, how can I make this right? Zacchaeus had abused his power. He took money that was not his, and he used the might of the Roman Empire to back him up in doing it. But that when he saw Jesus out, Jesus says, hey, let's go have dinner. I'm coming to your house today. We think of the story, the funny story of a dude who's short and he gets up in a sycamore tree, and we think that's the point of the story, but it's totally missing it. This is a guy who had power and means and money social standing he was way up there and that's why people didn't like him but as soon as he showed any sign of repenting jesus turned he says i'm coming with you let's make this right and so i think that's that's the core of what i have been hearing in this story is the idea that jesus goes, and he speaks, and he listens, and he teaches, and he interacts, and he's there to be supportive when he can, he's there to oppose when he must. But John 3.16, it's a famous verse, for God so love the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. 3.17 says, for the son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And so as the people of God, the body of Christ, it's our job not to condemn the world, but to save it. Because we do what he did. We do what he asks us to do. And so Christmas was Christ coming to earth. Christmas was the the son of God being willing to do what he needed to in the temple. And then when Joseph, Joseph and Mary found him, and they lectured him a bit, He went with them, and he was obedient to them. The Son of God submitted to his mother and stepfather, even though they didn't fully get what was going on. If only we had that kind of humility and service to others. We could change the world. So as we come to this table today, Maybe that's what we think of. Are there are there times that we have taken advantage of others? Are there times that we've used our status or our position to push people around because it made our lives easier? Are there things that we need to repent of so that God can be pleased with what we do? Because it's this idea of supporting and protecting and redeeming and restoring and saving. That is the work the church that is the word of god and that is the gospel of jesus christ